0: Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DiMarco. Students often wonder how to select a medical specialty, what will fit with their personality best and their lifestyle, and be enjoyable. Well, today we are joined by Dr. Brent Lacey. He is a gastroenterologist and the founder of The Scope of Practice, which helps physicians gain business knowledge and financial independence. Today, we're going to investigate some of the questions that every student should ask themselves and answers they need when considering their future specialty. Brent, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad you could join us today and
0: discuss something that a lot of students ask, they wonder about, but they don't necessarily always have the best answers or get the best advice for, and that's how to figure out what specialty they're actually going to be good at or enjoy in the long run.
1: Yeah, that's probably the most important question. What do we want to be when we grow up?
0: So first things first, I like to ask a little question here to break the ice, and that is, what is the most outrageous thing that you've seen in the academic medical setting?
1: The most outrageous thing you know I, I I think I would say the most the most outrageous thing I would say I don't know that it's the academic setting but I do but I do see it some you know in the academic setting and I think it's a an entrenchment of of opinions and an unwillingness to change one's ideas in the face of shall we say overwhelming evidence and you know we see this in uh, a lot of different areas we see it in the social arena we see it in the scientific community but you know I I'm amazed at how unwilling some people are to actually listen to other people's arguments and make you know their own arguments and and have a, an informed, intelligent discussion and instead. Just go well. You just don't know anything. Well, you know, you just don't have the experience. You know, well, well, th- then say something about my arguments or say something about my opinions. You know, let's let's have a discussion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, when I first took what was it philosophy of logic way back in undergrad that is a skill that most of us don't have we can't make arguments we don't see logical fallacies in our own arguments or in others and then we're just yelling at each other like it's social media
1: yeah absolutely i mean i remember i um, you know so i i i submitted a uh, a blog post to uh, kevin md earlier this year and it was called physicians should end the war against nps and pas and the entire the entire substance of the piece was that you know, everybody is, everybody's saying mean, hateful, awful things about, about, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants online and it's counterproductive and it makes us look bad. It makes them look bad and it doesn't lead to any kind of productive conversation. And I got this most tremendous amount of hate mail from that. Like, like you're calling for full practice authority. You don't want our patients to die in the streets. I'm like, what is happening right now? I just suggest that we should all be nice to each other. It's, that seems like it should be fairly uncontroversial.
0: Jeez. Yeah. I've run into a couple of those arguments just on different group pages and stuff. I I try to stay out of them because it's like talking about politics these days. You just don't necessarily want to get into it.
1: Oh, it's the third rail. I mean, you just grab it and you get (laughs) electrocuted.
0: So for the audience, maybe you could discuss a little bit about yourself and the scope of practice and why you are maybe uniquely or experienced in Answering these questions that we kind of have to ask ourselves about our specialty and what our future in medicine is going to look like.
1: Yeah. So I'm a full time gastroenterologist. And, you know, I've been teaching in an academic setting for, you know, years now at this point. And so one of the things that I have observed about about students, I think in general, is that we are trained in medical school and in our clinical training, we are really trained well to be physicians. And that's about it. So you know, there's just so much other information that we need that we're just not getting. And that was one of the reasons why I started the Scope of Practice was I observed that just people are coming out of training as great physicians and they don't know anything about how to run a clinical practice or how to lead a team and their personal finances are a complete disaster. And so that was why I started the Scope of Practice was try to give people the resources and the knowledge they need to be able to manage their business more successfully and master their personal finances. And one of the areas that I've seen and you know, kind of what we're talking about today is, you know, how do you figure out what's the right thing for you? I mean, you know, when I was in in med school, I remember, you know, I would ask, you know, the residents, well, how did you decide to be an internal medicine doc? And you know, you know, or how did you decide to be a surgeon? And pretty much everybody was like, Oh, you know, I just just kind of it just kind of felt it's just kind of what I like to do, you know. But I, I had a hard time getting people to give me some kind of concrete answer as to, well, why? Why is this better? Why is this your Why is this the thing you're super excited to get up for every day? You know, what do I need to be thinking about? What factors do I need to be considering? And so I've done a lot of thinking and even some writing about it over the years. And and so I'm super excited to get to share some of that with your audience today. Yeah, I think that's going to be
0: very helpful.
1: And I have been receiving the last couple
0: episodes of the Scope of Practice, the newsletter. So very useful information for the audience. You can go subscribe to that for free. And uh, when it comes to some of these questions about specialties, I, I have my own personal thoughts about what I think I'm looking for. And maybe a lot of that is biased by my experiences or even by having conversations with colleagues in the past and during medical school and all of that. So I'm wondering how much of that's actually going to coincide with some of the advice that you're going to give today.
1: Yeah. And I I think there's, I think there's a lot of ways that, that you can go about it. And I think what people should do more, more than anything is ask as many people as possible for their opinion. And the more data you have, you know, the better you're able to formulate a, a good plan for yourself.
0: Very true, very true. So I think we can get into some of the questions that students should ask. And just to preface this a little bit, I generally think in the most simplistic terms, it comes down to either the opportunity to get into a certain fellowship at a later point, or the work life balance that a student wants or just comes to the money whether they want to admit it or not that's usually a, a huge factor that seems to go into it so do you think that that that's accurate and i guess asking some of the questions that we're going to go over here are going to help students decipher that a little bit more for themselves probably not saying that the most accurately but
1: no, I'm I'm tracking you. No, I I think some of that's really valid. The work-life balance thing is a very interesting thing. I love that you mentioned that, and I know that there is a lot of emphasis on that these days. I know in the last ten years, uh, you know, so I graduated med school in '09. Had to think about that, and so you know, I know in the last ten years, there's been a big move towards people going into emergency medicine, a lot of uh, radiology, anesthesiology, a lot of things that involve shift work, and I think that that is, there's nothing wrong with that, particularly. But I think a, there's a, a big move towards that because of work life balance and the thing that I try to coach my my students and my residents is that work life balance is not specialty dependent it's person dependent so I mean I'm a gastroenterologist right I mean I and I'm a solo practitioner right now uh, I mean at least in my current setting until I join a I'm joining a group this summer but you know you could look at my life and go my life is thoroughly imbalanced and it's not, not really, I mean, yeah, I spend a lot more time at work than I do at home, and I get called in for emergencies periodically. That definitely happens, but you know, my balance that I have struck works for me and works for my family, and it's something my wife and I have uh, worked on and have you know are we continuously are evaluating, but I don't think that there's any way to blame a specialty for a lack of work-life balance. I think it's much more individual dependent. And so um, you know, I, I think as we ask some of these questions of ourselves here in a few minutes, I, I hope to be able to show that to people that you know, you know, if you blame the specialty for it, then you're potentially missing out on some great opportunities.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into it than just your occupation. There's a lot of life factors, a lot of personality factors that can play a role in that as well. So, what are some of the questions that a student should ask in order to kind of find this out to figure out what they're going to be a better fit with?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, well, let's let me go through some of the the ones that I generally coach my my students with. So, the first thing, the well, the first thing you got to know about me, I'm all about the team. All right, I'm a I'm a people person. I'm you know I'm I'm definitely an extrovert. I like to be out there with with folks, and so. One of the things that I think is very important to me, but I think this is going to be true generally of folks, is do you enjoy the people that you work with? And so here's something kind of interesting, and I'm sure you've observed this over your you know, career. And as, as the students that are listening to this and the pre-meds that are listening to this, one of the things you have to recognize about the stereotypes of specialties is that they're all true. <laughs> you know you're, we, we should not judge by the group and that is generally true when it comes to gender and race and sexual orientation i 100 percent agree with that however there is there is some validity to the notion that people of a certain personality style tend to gravitate towards certain specialties that is simply that is simply the truth and so the It's just very interesting because each specialty attracts a certain constellation of personality traits. And so as an aggregate, that specialty takes on those personalities. And so I think one of the things you need to recognize is that whatever specialty you're going into, the people that are working in that specialty are going to be pretty similar to each other. And so, you know, if you're a kind of person that you really love, you know, rough and tumble stuff and you love, you know, really aggressive, you know, uh, you know, chest bumping and, you know, high-fiving and checking each other's metrics and stuff like that, surgery and orthopedics may be for you. And, you know, if you're the opposite, you may not want that, but you need to kind of pay attention to who are the people that you're going to work with. Like, that's one of the reasons why I went into gastroenterology is that every gastroenterologist that I met just seemed happy all the time. They just seemed like they enjoyed life. And they enjoyed what they did. I was like, "That's really attractive to me." It never occurred to me to, to even ask that question. And I don't know why it never did, but you know, that's that's a very good, I think, initial starting place. Do you like the people that you're going to be working with?
0: Yeah. And the the comparison there, first, I always think of like radiologists and pathologists being stuck in their labs and their you know dark rooms down somewhere in the basement, but. Uh, Scrubs did the best oversimplification of that. I don't know if you ever watched the show, but they basically had medicine and surgical residents. So the surgical residents were the jocks and medicine residents were the nerds and I think uh, uh, they kind of played on that oversimplification a lot throughout the show too.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a great article that was uh, uh that was published, I forget where. I, I, maybe it was JAMA, but it was uh 7 or 10 years ago now, but if you just uh do a PubMed search for for an article called, uh, titled Physician, Know Thyself. There's a great uh, flowchart in there that's, that's, that's kind of the same thing. It's like the first branch point is loves people or hates people, you know? And, it's, and then it's like, you like the dark or you like the light. And then it's, you like kids or you hate kids. I mean, it's, it's, it's tongue in cheek, but it's very funny. I will say that it is funny because we see those stereotypes played out in real life. I mean, there is just validity to the fact that, you know, a lot of people in each specialty are very similar to each other. You know, another question that I think is really important for students to ask that was something that I actually got this advice from, I think, a fellow when I was in medical school is, do you enjoy reading about the clinical material in your chosen specialty? And, you know, if you're going to keep up with things, you got to enjoy reading this stuff. I mean, the the total amount of human knowledge doubles every five years. And that number, that doubling time is going to get shorter and shorter as, you know, life goes on, I'm sure. So you've got to constantly be reading to keep up to date, just to be able to keep up to date and to avoid falling behind. And if you just hate reading journal articles about you know, atrial fibrillation, you're probably not going to want to go into cardiology. So that's another good question to ask is, do you like reading about the clinical material in that specialty? Yeah, I don't
0: think we think about that too much. It's like, oh, I got into what I wanted to for... That say the procedural or the experiential learning, but not necessarily considering the continuing medical education. You're a lifelong learner. You're going to have to keep up with this forever. So if it's not a topic that you innately have some sort of desire to know about, to learn about, to read about, it's going to make it that much more difficult down
1: the road. Yeah, you brought up a good point there also about the procedural aspect of things. That's another good question that's, I think, worth asking is, do you want procedures to be a part of your life? I, I bristle a little bit when people start referring to GI as a procedural subspecialty and then they start referring to things like endocrine and neuro as the cognitive subspecialty. I can tell you as a gastroenterologist, it is highly cognitive. And, and cardiology and pulmonology are all the same way. We do a lot of procedures too, but there's a lot of important clinical medicine. But I know that was a very, actually a big part of things for me was that I knew that I wanted, I love working with my hands. I mean, I do woodworking, You know, I do, uh, I do lots of craft type things, and I really wanted that to be part of my practice was the ability to offer therapeutics and you know procedural diagnostics. And so, you know, when I was a second year, I had pretty much narrowed my choices down at one point to infectious disease and hemonc and GI because those were the three areas that I really just loved and was fascinated by the clinical medicine aspect of things. I mean, I love GI disease. I love learning about infectious disease. And you know, I just, you know, it, it ended up coming down to ID and GI for me. And one of the big kickers for me was that you don't get to do a lot of procedures. And that was actually a big piece of the puzzle for me. So that is a very worthy thing to consider as well. So I guess what you're kind of pointing at is there is an
0: interesting balance, depending on the specialty, with the clinical work and the clinical knowledge that must be maintained and the procedures that must be learned and maintained. And trying to find a happy balance there is going to be uh, vitally important in discovering which one is a better fit for you.
1: Oh, 100%. And it's true that of any specialty that you can find examples of people, and I can name several um, from gastroenterology, for example, of folks that they go into it just so that they can make a lot of money doing a lot of procedures. Those people drive me crazy. They just drive me crazy. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you an extension of that. I think that there's a lot of people that quote unquote escape to the subspecialties because they don't want to do general medicine stuff. I don't know how true this is of, say, the surgical fields, because that's, that's not uh, really my wheelhouse. But for the internal medicine subspecialties, for example, I know a lot of people that they go into cardiology so that they don't have to remember anything about diabetes. Well, I think that that's short sighted and frankly dumb. I mean, I went to school for a very long time to get good at this stuff. I don't have any interest in flushing any of that material down the drain. It just baffles me when people take glee and delight in going into their specialty and deliberately forgetting everything else about medicine. I mean, I tell my I tell my residents and my fellows all the time, the best specialists are the ones that are good at at general medicine. And so if you're not good at being an internist, you know, I'm not going to be as interested in your opinion as a specialist. So that's I think that there's some real value to being good at a variety of aspects of medicine.
0: Okay. That's actually an interesting point that I don't think we really planned on this question, but since internal medicine is such a unique aspect in that most of the fellowships kind of come from there, but then the fellowships are so diverse afterwards, it's not like if you go into surgery necessarily, or if you go into, let's say, pathology, where your your residency is going to be a large part of what you're going to be doing later on in your career. But if you go the internal medicine way your residency is going to be variable, but then your fellowship, your specialty is going to be much more niche. So it's kind of a weird balancing there too that you have to say, okay, well, maybe I don't like all of these other parts of internal medicine, but I just got to push through it to get to the fellowship I want to. Are there ways to like navigate that better?
1: I think you need to, uh, so I, I think you need to love each step along the way. I mean, if your goal is, I mean, I can't imagine what, I just don't have a box for the idea that you know I'm going to go into pulmonology. I have to suffer for three years in internal medicine until I can get there. I'm like, that sounds like a miserable experience. Why would you subject yourself to that? And more important, I care about your patients more than you. So why are you subjecting your patients to your bad attitude for three years just so that you can get to, quote unquote, the life you always dreamed of? Which, by the way, people who do that kind of thing very often find themselves disillusioned when they get to the far side of it. And they get into their specialty and they're like, oh man, I don't think I like this as much as I thought I did. What was I suffering those last three years for? That was really stupid. I wonder if that's what some of my preceptors
0: were going through.
1: <laughs> you know, I call it bloom where you're planted. I mean, you, you, need to, you need to do well in each stage of your training. And I think I am better at gastroenterology because I was a good internist. If you're good at and so here's here's something else I'll tell I tell folks all the time. This is something I try to teach my kids and I I, I certainly try to impart to my residents and my students. I am more likely to trust you with big things uh, or more advanced things if I can trust you with simpler and smaller things. Okay, so if you can't show me to be competent and enthusiastic about something uh, like internal medicine, why would I ever trust that you're going to do that in an internal med- in a GI fellowship or in a a neuro, neuro fellowship or a cardiology fellowship. And I've interviewed candidates for fellowships before that I knew them as residents. And I'm just sitting here the whole time going, okay, this is a 30 minute interview, but it was over before you walked in. I've, I've known you for too long. I have no interest in having you on my team. So I strongly recommend for people, you know, bloom where you're planted, learn to love um, what you're doing. And I'll tell you, that's actually something that I think is. Really important. I don't see this talked about anywhere, but I talk to my students about it all the time. In order to be successful and happy at the career that you've chosen, it's important that you have love for 99% of what you do. You really need to love it. I mean, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to have a good rapport with your patients, you need to get up in the morning and be fired up. You need to go in and go, Yeah, I'm so excited. I get to do this every day. You need to love it or you'll be miserable. But there's a flip side to that that most people don't consider, or they, they, they don't give it the credence that it deserves. And that is that you can't hate the 1%. So, I mean, you see that, I mean, you remember Occupy Wall Street about 10 years ago and all those people mm-hmm. were in, uh, you, know, you know, all the financial districts of the big cities going like, we are the 1%, you know, and all that stuff. They, or we are the 99%. And yes. <laughs> all, all I generally knew about them was that they hated whoever this vague, ambiguous boogeyman of 1%ers are. You know, but they were very, very poorly defined. Well, I, th- I think that we have a tendency to do that as physicians as well. That, you know, we say, okay, well, I love 99% of what I do and I, I hate this other 1%, but the other 99% makes it worthwhile. Do not fall into that trap. If you're listening to this and you're a third year or fourth year medical student, don't let someone sucker you into believing that, okay? Because it's not true. And I'll give you an example, okay? 1% of the diagnoses that I see is irritable bowel syndrome. Okay, for gastroenterology, irritable bowel syndrome is the 1% of GI. Okay, and for urology and OBGYN, it's interstitial cystitis. And for neuro and room, it's fibromyalgia. And for cardiology, it's atypical chest pain. And for, you know, orthopedics, it's anything to do with internal medicine. And, you know, there's, there's just really a lack of understanding, I think, or lack of awareness on the part of a lot of physicians at how corrosive it is to the spirit to. Hate any aspect of your practice, and so for me, I knew going into my GI fellowship that irritable bowel syndrome patients, you know, by and large, they tend to be more demanding. They tend to be more, you know, that th- we have fewer therapies that we can offer them that are successful. Um, it tends to be unsatisfying in terms of clinical medicine because there's not anything structural that we can really treat, and. I had, I had sort of learned this during my GI rotations that I did during residency, and I made it my mission, my first year of fellowship, that I was going to learn how to love my irritable bowel syndrome patients. I was going to train myself to find IBS intellectually fascinating. And the genuine truth is that it is intellectually fascinating. And I allowed myself to be surprised by that. And consequently, I love my irritable bowel syndrome patients. But I can't tell you the number of GI docs that I know that they're looking at their schedule and they look and they're like, oh, Miss Jones is coming in again. Oh, and then there's like their whole day is just there's this black cloud hanging over them until 2.25 and when she shows up and she's like, okay, I just got to power through this. That's miserable. Why would you ever want to subject yourself to that? So I think recognizing what the 1% is is a very important thing to recognize about each specialty. And so as you're considering going into a specialty, Try and figure out what that 1% is. And trust me, if you're a student, your preceptors will not have a problem identifying it for you because they complain about it incessantly. So whatever that is, you know the thing that people complain about the most, determine for yourself that you are gonna be able to find that exciting and challenging and unique and interesting and valuable, and you will succeed.
0: Wow. That's yeah, really great advice. You always hear of either a colleague or a preceptor or someone complaining about something. There's one thing that they just really don't like. So I think a lot of students probably accept that that's probably just a fact of their future occupation. There's going to be something that they don't like, but you're saying that that doesn't have to be the way and knowing which one it is or finding something interesting about that 1% that you thought you were going to hate uh, is a good way to prevent you know burnout and really love what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And th- that burnout that you mentioned right there, that's huge. I mean, that's, I think that is a big component of burnout is that the 1% becomes three, becomes five, becomes 10, becomes 50 until it occupies all of your thought time. And it's, it's like I said, the word that I use is, and I choose that word deliberately, is corrosive. It's slow, it's gradual, and it eats away at the soul. It's just terrible. It's like rust, it's like cancer. And so you just have to get to a place where those kinds of things don't exist in your life, that you just expel that attitude from your brain. And you're gonna find plenty of people that are willing to you know, whine and moan and complain about it. And if you surround yourself with those kinds of people, then you're gonna internalize those same feelings. But you've gotta just decide for yourself, no, that's not gonna be me. I'm gonna love these people. I'm gonna love this medicine. I'm just not going to allow myself to have my spirit die because I couldn't figure out a way to enjoy this.
0: I love it. So, are there any other questions that students should be aware of and asking themselves currently, if they're in their clinical rotations, or even before, just to prepare?
1: Well, I mean, financial compensation is always a good thing to consider. Although, I will, I would argue that you know that's less important because there's lots of ways that you can make more money, either by just being more creative or uh, by you know, in, by other you know forms of investing, or simply living a more Spartan or more frugal lifestyle for a while so that you're able to build up the savings that you want. But that's an important um, consideration, certainly. I'll tell you the strategy that I would use for, uh, for people. And this is, this is what I did when I was a uh, med student. And then when I was a resident, thinking about respectively going into residency and then fellowship, is I would ask every person that I met that was in a specialty that I was considering, what's the best thing about this job? And what's the worst thing about this job? I actually started this even before that. Now that I think about it, because I, I did this when I was a pre-med and I was thinking about med schools. And anytime I'd go interview at a med school, I would ask everybody I met, you know the, the, you know, the attendings, the residents, the students, the janitors. I mean, I would ask anybody who would listen to me, hey, what's the best thing about this place? What's the worst thing about this place? And you can do the same thing with specialties. I think when you polarize the question that way and say, what's the best and what's the worst, people can come up with an answer that's specific. Because if you just ask, hey, so what do you like about this place? You know, people are like, oh, you know, it's kind of a nice area. It'll give you some vagaries that's really, really unhelpful. But if you force someone to make a decision and say what's best and what's worse, you ask enough people and you'll get an amalgamation of data that will tell you, you know, you, you may have nine people that say, the administration here are really toxic and they hate physicians. And if you have nine people that say that, run away. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's a really good strategy is go... Go be where the people are that are in the specialty that you're interested in. And just ask them, what do they think about it? What do they like? What do they hate? I think that's really good advice, especially if you have a lot of
0: people to potentially ask. Sometimes, however, some students, especially from smaller schools, might not necessarily have all of the same resources as a larger school or have the same number of specialists in every different department to ask. So if they have questions about this, or if they're even just trying to attain a Rotation in a certain specialty. What are some tips they could that they could use to explore
1: this further? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so a couple of things. Number one is is reach out to folks online. I mean, folks like I mean, folks like you, folks like me. I mean, I'm I'm always willing to talk to folks and, and help people try to you know try to frame things. But uh, go through some of the national societies. So if there's uh, you know, for example, if you're thinking maybe you're interested in OBGYN, most of the national societies, you can get a student membership for either free or very, very inexpensive, like less than a hundred bucks a year. And that'll open up all kinds of opportunities for you. A lot of these, a lot of these societies actually have mentorship programs where you can sign up for free and they'll pair you with somebody around the country. And you know, you can just, you know, you can just work with them. A lot of those societies will have some kind of a paid clerkship that you can apply to. So, like when I was, for example, when I was in fellowship, I applied for a this it was the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America had an inflammatory bowel disease clerkship that you could get uh you just write an essay and and submit it and uh then I got an all paid uh, all expenses paid free month training at University of Pittsburgh training under one of the like international greatest experts on inflammatory bowel disease well that was just from googling stuff like what are opportunities are there for training. And, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, talking to my director about it and say, Hey, listen, they want to give me this free trip to go work at Pitt. You know, is that cool? And he's like, Oh my gosh, how did you get that? Yes. Yes. Go do that for sure. But yeah, definitely seek out those opportunities. And, and, you know, if you know, if you don't ask, the answer is definitely going to be no. Right. So you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So, you know, go ask. I think you'd be amazed at how many times, you know, you'll, especially if you've got a free elective coming up, you know, ask your director, Hey, listen, I've got an idea. I want to see about Going out in the community and doing this, you know, uh, rotation because I'm really interested in maybe doing GI, for example, and then just start reaching out to some of the GI groups out in town and go, "Hey, listen, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a, a resident. I'm interested in GI. Can I just come and shadow one of your docs for a month and and just learn the clinical medicine? You'll find somebody, you know, who's interested. I mean, there's just too many people out there who, you know, that that you, you'll find somebody, and then just you know, create the opportunities for yourself. So don't be afraid to get creative with it, you know, and then just ask your directors about it. And if you find that, Hey, you know, I, you know, that your director is just, you know, he's just, he or she is just one of those people that they just are not willing to help you. You know, the national societies, so that's a great opportunity for you. And, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing that you just, you know, you just, you know, just try, try new things and just see what sticks and what doesn't. Or, you know, if you have maybe some people that have graduated from your training program previously, you can reach out to them and go, hey, listen, you know, I had this idea. What do you think? Did anybody, you know of anybody that's tried anything like that? But the more people you ask, the more likely you are to find something that works.
0: Got it. That's a lot of resources there. Definitely add some links in the show notes for some of those to help guide students. And I'm kind of curious too, from your perspective, what about from the instructor's point of view, from the preceptor's point of view, how can they help to guide students in their clinical rotations, maybe towards a specialty or notice you know what do you do if the student on my rotation doesn't like the specialty I'm in? Just trying to get through it because it's a core or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I So I think a couple of things. One is that, like I said, there are some personality traits that are unique to each specialty. So for example, with, let's say with the neurosurgery, just as an example, neurosurgery, they have very, very long procedures. So if you've got a patient, or not a patient, sorry, if you've got a student who's rotating with you, a resident who's rotating with you, and you can tell that they've just got a really short attention span that they're not going to be comfortable standing for seven hours doing, you know, some spinal dissection or something like that. I think you have a frank conversation with that person and say, listen, you know, here's the reality. And, and I like couching it in that 1% thing, right? So, and I'll, and I'll tell people like, listen, I know you're excited about this specialty and that's great here's the Here's the ninety nine percent of the stuff that's great, and it seems like you really enjoy that. but let me tell you about this one percent of the specialty that most people uh, struggle with and what do you think about that? What's your attitude towards that and try to gauge you know what are they what is the student or what is the resident thinking about and if if you can convince somebody in a thirty minute conversation not to go into a specialty, they needed to be convinced so you know sometimes i'll if i've got a if I've got a student that I'm like, okay, this person is going to be miserable because Of whatever, right? So their attention span's not right, or they they hate working with their hands, or they're simply very bad at it, or they they can't keep enough you know thoughts in their mind to be able to do the more kind of complex interlocking things that you have to do administratively to be a primary care doc or whatever. Then you know I'll try to kind of coach them out of it and say, listen, I know you've got this idea of what the ideal is for this specialty, but but let me kind of show you what the reality is let me explain sort of the reality of it and you tell me if you think that, that really jives with what you're shooting for but i think having some of those very frank conversations with them about what's the best things about the specialty and then also not shying away from what are the worst things about the specialty cuz if you can show them that and they go yeah i'm going to hate that then they need to find something else and that's good for them that's good for you it's good for the patients
0: yeah that's a great way to approach it i haven't really thought about it that way and was never approached by any of my preceptors asking those types of questions to see if what you think you like doing is actually what you're going to enjoy doing in the long run. So I think that's a valuable point that instructors and preceptors could add into their teaching curriculum too, just to help gauge students earlier on so they don't go too long without maybe making the necessary changes or looking for electives in something else that they might enjoy. Now that we're getting a little closer to the end here, I have a couple last-minute questions for you, and one of them is really a question. You can answer either one of these or pick one, but that is, what is the biggest change you hope to see in academic or clinical medicine in the next five to 10 years, or what is the accomplishment that you're most proud of?
1: Well, the biggest change that I hope to see in academic or clinical medicine in the next five to 10 years is better preparation for folks for quote-unquote real-world medicine. So I would love to see more of the the kinds of things that I write at the scope of practice. I would love to see more of that taught in medical schools. So I would love to see um, more personal finance uh, taught. I would love to see leadership skills. I would love to see um, you know small business management skills like hiring and firing, how to navigate taxes, medical legal stuff. I would love to see those things integrated into every fourth year curriculum nationwide. I mean, honestly, if in 15 years all the all the sites like mine are just obsolete because all the medical schools are teaching them, I, I'm going to be very, very happy with that. I would love to see that kind of stuff. And in the meantime, I'm certainly happy to keep providing that for folks until uh, all the medical schools get themselves figured out in that realm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, we're going to have some topics of leadership in future episodes, depending on what order this one comes out. So these are great topics that we should be uh, I should think about bringing onto the show and helping to teach the students maybe what they're not learning in their academic environments yet. So great advice there. And do you have any other resources that you recommend for students or teachers that could benefit from either choosing a specialty or, like you said, your business finance material?
1: So my um, so you mentioned leadership, and uh, you know the, one of the things that I am constantly teaching on you know on for for my students and my residents if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. And so I forget who it was that said it first. I know it's attributed to John Wooden, but I don't think he's the first person that said it is, uh, you'll be exactly the same person you are five years from now, except for the people you meet and the books you read. And so if you want to grow by 30% in the next 15 years, then you need to be reading 30% more books than you are right now. And I know I'm saying this as you know a guy who has utterly no time for reading that stuff. And you know, I just make myself do it anyway, and it's just super important. If you want, I actually put together a reading list for folks that you know, you guys are you're welcome to just give people. I've got it at uh, thescopeofpractice.com/slash/reading/list, and it's uh, 35 books on personal finance and business management and leadership and marketing and all the stuff that I think is really valuable for uh, people that are either interested in you know just bettering themselves from a financial perspective or from a a leadership or personal development perspective it's by no means comprehensive but that's a great thing so the scope slash reading list and then I would say also start listening to some podcasts there's lots of great ones obviously um, you know all of your stuff is fabulous I definitely want people to go back in fact go back right now put this down and uh, just go binge listen to all of his archives right now you should be doing that anyway so shame on you for not having done that yet <laughs> but there's lots of great other podcasts out there there's leadership podcast marketing there's um, you know personal growth and development. But yeah, the more you read, the, you know, the more, the more you learn, go to listen to TED talks, you know, go listen to, uh, go to conferences, go meet people, just constantly be learning, constantly be trying to grow. I mean, there's the stuff's out there. I mean, it's not hard. I mean, you just start Google searching, you know, physician leadership, start Google searching physician personal finance. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. You'll find just any number of resources, but those are just a few.
0: Love it. Yeah. I have to do the audio books a lot of the time because I don't have time necessarily to read, but between those and podcasts, so much free resources out there. It's great. Everyone should definitely utilize them as much as possible and check out all of your great content as well at the scope of practice. And do you have any parting thoughts maybe for someone that now or in the near future might think about becoming a preceptor?
1: Yeah. So uh, what I would say is that the best teachers are the people that are the best learners. So my personal motto that that I developed for myself when I was in college and uh, has has um, really stuck with me for the last twenty years is a, a Latin phrase by Cicero: "Docendo discimus." We learn by teaching, and so I'm always I'm always of the belief that if you can't teach somebody something, you don't fully understand it. So what I would encourage people to do, and you can start doing this as a first year medical student, or you can start doing this as a premed if you want. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything formal. But, you know, the more you are able to teach somebody something, the better you know that you understand it. So start teaching each other. Like when I was, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if they still use the term to pimp, you know, as a, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a, a politically correct term anymore, but like pimping each other as far as like, you know, quizzing each other about medical, you know, knowledge and stuff. When I was a second year, I had, uh, it was me and five other guys. We, uh, we had, we were just good buddies. And before every round of tests, we would go, there was this little hole-in-the-wall taco bar place that we would go on Saturday morning, get breakfast tacos for like 99 cents and, uh, and sit down and just quiz each other for like three hours. And we called it the Pimp-tacular. And uh, so <laughs> that, was, uh, that was something that we would do. We would you know quiz each other and we would take turns teaching each other the different things. And so once we got to a place where we knew that we were all able to explain it in such a way that we could make someone else understand, we knew that we knew it. And that helped me hone my teaching style. The more I, the more I learned, to do that the other thing that i would definitely want people to take away is you're going to find preceptors and instructors that you just can't stand being around right don't let that be the reason that you fail to learn something important from them okay so the guy who is the attending in my fellowship who was the hardest person for us to to work with was not because he wasn't a good guy it's because he taught us he taught us so well and But the way he did it was he would, he would just ask you question after question after question until he eventually came to something you didn't know. And then so at the end of every conversation was you left feeling dumb. But it's, it's just the way that he taught. And he, I learned so much from him. And it wasn't because he was a jerk. It wasn't because he wasn't, he wasn't a good guy. Now, you will find some of those. You'll find some people that are abusive and that are mean. But if they're going to teach you something... Don't don't shoot yourself in the foot. you know, Don't fail to learn something just because the guy's being mean to you or the gal's being mean to you or something. So take any learning wherever you can get it and uh, just resolve that you're not going to be that kind of teacher yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely try to improve on some of those, I guess. Improve on the worst one you ever had. Uh, I don't know. That's not a good ending. <laughs> 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 well, Dr. Brent Lacey, thank you so much for joining and for the audience, do check out the Scope of Practice. We'll link all of the show notes to his articles mentioned and a few other important links. And thank you again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: Are you looking for productivity and study coaching? You can now register for a free 30-minute session with me, sponsored by Prospective Doctor. To register, go to perspectivedoctor.com chase and register for a 30-minute coaching session. And if you decide to use our MCAT or USMLE tutoring services, you can now use the code CHASE10 and receive 10% off of your purchase of up to $400. Just enter CHASE10 to get your discount now.